Welcome to MSP 1337. I'm your host, Chris Johnson, a show dedicated to cybersecurity challenges, solutions, a journey together, not alone. We are on episode 98. This week, we will be talking with Wes Spencer about all things related to vulnerabilities and bugs that we might find in our systems and share them with our vendors. And how do we have that conversation with our clients? Now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of MSP 1337. I'm joined this week by Wes Spencer of Fifth Wall. Welcome, Wes. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, so as always with MSP 1337, we try to have what I would call a raw conversation. This episode is no different because we've had a chance to talk for a whopping 15 minutes about what we were going to talk about. And this week, like many of the episodes, we either end up talking about uh, going down a rabbit hole and talking about cyber insurance and all the bad things that are happening. You guys have all seen it in the news, especially lately about the way things are changing, especially as it comes to things like nation states. Uh, but today we wanted to talk about something that I believe and West believes is is far more actionable. And it kind of stemmed from the conversation started about the recent last class um, uh, exploit or, or uh, exfiltration of data and kind of going down this path of they, they seem to have done a good job of, of communicating out to us that that this has happened and, and to not freak out because we're, we're on top of it. We're doing forensics. We'll keep you posted. And that got us talking about the things that we see that get reported as vulnerabilities that can be patched, which is great, right? Because that means there's an actionable, we can address this. But what about the times when you find something and it hasn't been patched or given you the opportunity to correct it because there's not a correction yet available? Uh, we all talked about this with things like Log4j and some others. And I had this conversation this morning with Wayne. I was telling Wes earlier like, how do you go to a vendor and say you have two weeks to fix something before I'm going to tell the world about what you've done or the lack of, of you know, focus on security, even though you may not be in the security space at all? And, and part two of that, really where I think it hits home is, what is a reasonable amount of time and why would we ever want to disclose publicly unless the vendor that we're talking about is just genuinely being malicious and saying, we're just not going to fix it. We're, we're hiding it. You're wrong. Okay, that's different. That's where journalism comes in and, you know, get, get the, uncover the dirt, right? But by and large, I think most companies that we work with, they're not in business to hide stuff from us when it comes to the, there's a vulnerability. They, they would want to know. Um, but sometimes I think we forget that just because it exists doesn't mean it can be fixed. So I had asked you, we want to take the approach of how do we attack or tackle this with our vendors? And then and then as we do that and, and have candid conversations and, and really are open and honest with both ourselves and our clients, how do we have that conversation with our clients so that they're assured that we're doing what's in their best interest, but, oh, by the way, we're not going to go spend $100,000 to replace you know the RAID array controller because it's got a log 4J and you just don't happen to have a hundred grand laying around to fix this. So vendor first, right? So where do you start, Wes? Wow. Uh, there, there's a lot of different directions we can take this. Um, and so I think we'll just have to unpack. It. Yeah, we're just gonna have to unpack a bunch of them. Let's start with this. Um, you know, over the past 10 years, we've seen a significant growth in awareness of how to handle vulnerabilities. 
you know, you remember the Uber uh, breach all those years ago where it was the literal collusion and the CEO sure. and the CISO did everything they could to cover it up. And, you know, um, I think there's stories of indictment and could this be the first CISO that ever sees jail time for mishandling vulnerabilities, right? Like you have that end of the spectrum that's like completely egregious all the way to this end of the spectrum where, um, how do I say this? It's almost like we want to input in uh, like, we want to virtue signal our our vulnerability handling, right? What I mean by that is like, look how progressive we are and how we handle this. We're so far in the leading edge of what we see of something that happened for us. We're letting everybody know, and we don't even know the impact behind this, right? <laughs> right? And you spin up a hornet's nest and things get really bad. So I think we can start there is there's a big spectrum here. And there's so many nuances that exist in between all of this, where you have inside legal, outside legal telling you what you should and shouldn't say, and even them having different varying degrees of understanding. I've dealt with corporate legal. I'm sure you have too. Corporate legal typically knows jack about security and will misrepresent or misguide in, in some of these things. So we can't say that. We have to be silent on that. We can't. We say this, then all these bad things could happen, blah, 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 sure. blah, blah. So yeah, we got a problem here in this big spectrum. We can start with that, Chris. Well, and, and then that would, I, I just thinking about what you just said, you know, people often confuse policies as legal documents. Like, did your lawyer write your, you know, data destruction policy? Pro probably not. I, I'd be concerned if they did, because they're not experts on data destruction. Um, but, 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 but to that, you know, we see this in, in insurance, you know, you fill out your, your uh, questionnaire uh, to get the policy. And sometimes in the policy, you talk about things like, where are my maximums for certain categories, like say PR disclosures or reputation management. There's, you know, and I'm not trying to get into like the actual insurance, but just thinking about what you just said, if we are really in a position where, you know, as a solution provider, I'm going to my vendor and saying, Hey, we think we've uncovered something. It's definitely a vulnerability. Please correct us if we're wrong here. And, and the response you get from the vendor is, well, hold on, we need to engage legal before we give you an actual response. That already makes me feel like, okay, well, what are they trying to hide? What's yeah. really going on there, right? Yeah, because you see some vulnerability disclosure programs that are out there, even bug bounties that actually mandate um, some kind of NDA on the front of it. Sure. And to me, you know, you talk to any security researcher worth their weight in gold, they won't sign those things to start. Why should they be in, encumbered by potential legal prerogatives of things they can and can't speak about just to be able to do their job of showing something that they found? Um, I can actually pull somebody out my name because I have his permission. Jason Slagle, real good friend of mine. He's an MSP owner. I've heard and that name. Yeah, he's so he's you got to have him on the show for sure. He's one I of the absolutely. most technical, one of the most technical people I know, and he's actually found vulnerabilities in well-named companies that he's actually disclosed. You can find his name in CVEs, and he will tell you when I see a bug bounty disclosure program that forces an NDA on the front, I am very I usually won't go through the process, and I'll go through in my own means because he said I'm not about to get dis I'm not about to get slapped with non-disclosures of things sure. I can't say if things go south. Right, and they choose not to handle it. It correctly and I'm I'm I can't say something about it won't do it so I, I totally understand that point and uh, I think there's the good news is on this there's a there's a lot of right ways to do vulnerability disclosure and a lot of that's been published we don't have to go reinvent yeah. the wheel here it, it makes me think about the uh you you mentioned uber and it made me think of the the Tesla vulnerability that was uncovered by the I mean he I don't think he was a college kid you know 
teenager, but basically he uncovered and found that he could, he knew the VIN number of a vehicle, he could dictate to the car what to do. Like, so, uh, and his, his initial like claim and they didn't believe him was that he had found, you know, how to basically hack and, and make a car do something without having the proper authority to do it. And they kind of shut him down and said, we really don't believe you, but like, Hey, thanks for, for the bug warning. Here's, I think it was a couple thousand dollars, like, Hey, go away. But, but we, we do validate you and that you did find something. Well, he continued to follow his sort of rabbit hole that he was going down and discovered that if he followed upstream to the, to the server above the one that he had gotten to, he actually had access to the VIN numbers for all of Tesla's cars for like across the globe. And so he called up and trying to get them to get on the phone and still in denial, denial, denial. Right. And, and he basically goes, pick a car in the parking lot, pick one. He's like, all right, I want you to tell me the VIN number. So I don't actually do this to the wrong car. They tell him the VIN number. He backs the car out of its spot. Now they're freaking out a little bit saying, okay, we recognize that there's definitely a vulnerability. So instead of like saying, Hey, uh, we'd love to have you to continue to find bugs in our system to continue to help us with this. They basically were like, here's a sum of money, go away. In my mind, I'm thinking, man, get this kid a Tesla or three uh, and tell him to, hey, we want you on payroll. Continue finding bugs like this because you are improving the safety of our company. Um, obviously, I don't know all the details. And and this is, you know, you know, we're sharing this publicly. Tesla may have done a whole bunch of great things afterwards. The point was what got published in the media that articulated what this kid had done to me says, I've got stuff to hide or stuff that I don't think is important enough to address because you found it. Uh, I'll wait until somebody that I consider to be important until Jason Slagle finds it. I'm not going to be serious about this, right? Yeah. And, and you're right. Sometimes it's actual corporate well-meaning that gets misconstrued. What I mean by that is it's not uncommon for, you know, internal legal to look at something and say, whoa, if this got out right now, this is potential loss of life. This is potential like damage. This is potential lawsuit kind of stuff. And they're not, they're not trying to keep disclosure because they, they are, you know, because they're afraid of it and all that. They're like, no, no, if this gets out now, let's use uh let's use a gas pipeline, right? Let's sure. say that gas pipeline has a significant vulnerability that could, that could lead to, you know, loss of gas being delivered. I could understand how they'd want to have a non-disclosure, some kind of like confidentiality agreement while it's being addressed so that it doesn't leak while there's actual vulnerability. Like I totally understand Before where that it comes fixed. from. Yes, that's right. Until it gets fixed. And so that's another thing to think through too, is like, how do you balance that with the security researcher and reporter who literally most of them, yes, some of them do it for bounties and to survive. And I think that's great, but most of them are doing it because they saw something and they're truly being that white hat of, I saw something, I'm saying something. And for the good of others around us, I want to make sure you fix this and I need to hold you accountable to it. So if you slap me with non-disclosures, I can't hold you accountable. So how do we have that balance between the two to make sure that, you know, their potential impacts are addressed and they're not. And one of those ways that typically works is some kind of timeline. I know we talked about that a little bit, but timelines are nice because then you can say, Hey, look, we have a confidentiality agreement and that has a destruction timer in three weeks, four weeks, whatever right. the timeline is. Yeah, so I think I like that, that makes a lot of sense as a middle ground. And and I think there also needs to be an opportunity to extend it. And I don't mean like, Hey, uh, yeah, we couldn't get to it this week, you know, because it was my son's birthday party kind of thing, but like, Hey, here's, here's proof that we're actually going after a solution to solve this problem. 
it's going to take us 60 days, 60 to 90 days to actually deploy this fix. You know, I think that's one of the challenges we have. You know, I spent a lot of time in, in, uh, in the data application space, I wasn't a good programmer, but I was a good troubleshooter. So I, I would find problems with like form validation and, and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the things that we talked about when we were going through that, like we didn't talk, this is early 2000. We didn't talk about like how somebody would like, you know, espionage and try to hurt somebody. Um, this is, these were patient forms where like you're putting in like clinical labs and, you know, maybe a prescription. And so my job was to make sure that when we did validation, that it was actually checking against the Mars database to verify that the dosage matched what would be considered a safe dosage for the patient. And then forced like when the dosage was like above, like, Hey, you got to like write notes. Like the doctor is signing off. Like, Hey, my, my license as a doctor is on the line because I'm choosing to not follow the recommended guidelines. And, you know, we got talking about it. It's like today it's like, well, man, we could really throw a wrench in some things. Like what if we made it so that the dosage was like lethal and it's the recommended dosage now, because I, I hacked that, that web application, uh, what's realistic for fixing that? You know, my thought process goes, I don't really care how long it takes you to fix it. We're shutting it down, right? Like, so if you told us like, hey, you're right, this is life-threatening, this could happen in the wild, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen right now, we're shutting it down until we can find a fix. The the, the other one that comes to mind, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is the the recent exploit or our recent uh, vulnerability disclosure on the Apple iOS with VPNs. So if you haven't turned off all communication services before you enable the VPN, any of those services that were already communicating out, they're not suddenly switching over to route traffic through the VPN tunnel. That's been a known data leakage issue that's been known by Apple for several versions of the OS. To me, that says, we don't care that you found this. We're going to keep it as quiet and dark as we can for as long as we can. That benefits nobody, right? That actually benefits nobody because now I, I have less trust in the device that I'm using because they just didn't want to address it. Yep, I I agree. And I, I think there's like, you know, a lot of these like large companies that have big bug bounties and they'll pay, you know, up to 100K or more, you know, if you find a vulnerability, some of them, you know, there's a, we can take a page out of some of those books, like where sometimes it may be something really significant that you find. And they say, hey, look, someone found, we're going to pay out on a bug, bug bounty. Here's what we see. Here's where some of the risk is. Here's what we're doing to address it. But the technical details don't come out for a few more months. And I think in many cases, something like that can work, right? So right. We, we that way we're sort of proving, we put some skin in the game with the researcher to say, look what we've done. We're working with you in tandem, right. but we want to make sure that the technical details are not disclosed until all the patches are out, everything's been addressed. And then we put the rest of it, that can work, but there are times especially when it leads to potential loss of life or maybe nation state vulnerability where we have to, we do have to clamp down on everything. Now those are rare, but you know, what's really cool about that, Chris, all of this comes back to our happy place in security, which is what is risk? You know, right. risk is, is threat times vulnerability times impact. It's those things together. And I think this, that, that old school, like security 101 lesson still holds true in this is we need to think about what is the threat? What's the nature of that threat? What is the weakness in that system, that vulnerability? And what's the significance of it, which sure. is the impact? And I think if we go through that exercise, we can really start to understand how we handle that vulnerability based on that, that outcome. And I think you also have to add in, it's not so much the calculation per se, but what's my threat surface? So 
system X is exploitable, meets all the criteria, but it's, you know, you know, on a, you have to get on a jump system to get to it. It's very siloed. You know, a lot of things are in place to, for lack of a better word, reduce the probability of an impact. The threat's still high. We're not changing the threat, but we've made it so that you can't really get to the system. And I think that in, you know, and kind of transitioning to how we have these conversations with our clients, we can't always fix it even when it's actionable, right? And I think that because of, of the vulnerabilities that are out there, because of the new um, gravitation towards, hey, you know, elections aren't for a few months, right? Like those kind of things. We have to have something to talk about in the media. And whether it's the last pass or, or you name it, it's going to get front page of somebody's newspaper or, or blog, you name it. And what's, what's unfortunate about that is that's public facing, which means that everybody consuming that 80% to 90% or more are not qualified to use the formula, right? They don't have the technical expertise. They don't necessarily know what the financial obligations would be to remediate this. But by and large, they are coming to their solution providers and say, hey, I saw this in the news. I saw this and I know this is a big deal. My, my son told me about it or, or you name it. How do we have a uh, practical conversation with our clients? Because I think gone are the days of saying, hey, Security is really more just a mindset. That's obviously very important. The people element, very important. But I think we're at a point now that we are being ignorant and negligent if we're not also bringing products and services into the mix to help reduce those probabilities, to help you know uh, mitigate or minimize the actual impact. How do you go about that conversation? Wes, I, I ask you because I know a lot of your background and, and I think you probably can answer it at least better than I can. Well, I've spent a large portion of my career learning how to do that. You know, when I started, so I spent um, about three years as a CIO at a bank. And this is a great example of this. When I started at the bank, I mean, they 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 liked me. They hired me for personality fit for sure. But I, I recognized day one, when I went to those board meetings, I was replacing a former CIO that probably didn't have as much, um, he just didn't have the credibility at the business level. Super, super smart guy, but didn't have that. And I'm like, Okay, how do I how do I establish this credibility with them? And I think it took a long time. It took many, many, many months of me spending time with the board, thirty minutes at a time, yep. talking about something relevant, bringing a cyber discussion, a cybersecurity topic that's relational to the bank, to where they finally were like, "Wow, this guy actually understands, and he understands how that this relates to the business." And so I think a lot of this does start with assess yourself first, and and think through when I talk to my clients, do I have the credibility? with them to where this matters. Because if you don't, and you just try to bring the latest, greatest threat that comes at them, they're just going to tune it away. They're yep. so tired of security people crying wolf, crying wolf, crying wolf, and there's no wolf. And so I think if, if you do a good job with really good established credibility of I'm a risk manager, and I'm here to help your organization succeed and thrive by reducing cost, building scale for complexity, uh, and, and reducing threats, and you're sitting there at the board level, so to speak, of that kind of um, credibility, it goes a really long way when you bring these things up. So I think that's step one. And then step two is being smart. Not all major like newsworthy items are something that you want to bring in front of them, right? Especially it doesn't relate to their industry. I'll give you an example. Don't try to go to a hospital about the latest threat of, of around like ATM hijacking. 
right? Mm -hmm. But talk to a bank or a bank provider all day long on that stuff. So I think those are important things. And then the other thing that's important, and I learned this from an MSP friend of mine who's, who made a good comment. He said, you know, he said, Wes, as a great example, when all of this stuff was happening around Log4j, he said, I had a lot of clients reaching out to us saying, I'm seeing this on the news. What does this mean? And he said he really struggled because most of like the articles that he wanted to send were very technical and they mm -hmm. were just not geared towards a business owner that just needs to decipher, is this a risk to me? How much of a risk it is right. and what should I do about it? That's all they care about. Right. And so he's like, I found myself having to distill all of this complex messaging and media right. and retransmitting it into a business owner. Here's what you need to know. And so that's another piece of it too, is are you a good translator of the information as well? Because you can't just regurgitate it. If you do that, they're going to tune you out. The reason they're going for to you for advice is because they've already heard the technical stuff. They yeah. don't want regurgitation. They want reinterpretation in language they understand. Yeah, I've, uh, I often find myself going and using a product called Write Sonic. And you take your topics, you take your the stuff you do know, and you plug it in. And then it auto-generates an article about it. So Yes, it's largely AI, but it's grabbing information from what's in the news to help you create a narrative that includes stuff from a more or, or less technical perspective. Because that's one thing AI is not good at is creating English written, <laughs> using the English language to tell a story about technical things. It just can't. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm looking up right Sonic right now. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very pretty it's, cool stuff. It's pretty, it is absolutely cool. I've been using it for about a year. In fact, I'll just, just slide slight tangent here. Uh, I, when I was in the school district, I, we were joking about how kids, you know, plagiarism is a very common thing. And so I said, let me show you how uh, a kid could really get away with something that you would have really no way of, you can't run it through, turn it in and get back that it was, you know, plagiarized or that it was, that they didn't write it. And so we decided to have created like this very uh, obscure article on or paper on essay. And the premise was why horses make the best service animals in the classroom. And it generated this essay like that like appeared to be very well researched, is about three and a half pages long, that went through all of the details around why horses were the superior animal as a therapy or service dog in a school classroom. And I gave it to the the department head for the STEM program for um, for the honors English class. And I handed it to the teacher and she starts reading through it. And she's like, who wrote this? And I'm like, the computer. And like her eyes got really big and was like, wow, like it's well-written. The grammar's there. Like it's crazy. Anyways, totally, totally, totally tangent. Uh, I wanted to go back now that we're off the tangent, uh, unless you want to stay on the tangent. No, no I um, AI is such a fun, fun thing to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I probably need to do one just on, Hey kids, here's how to circumvent, turn it in. No. Um, so rewinding back to your step one, which was um, really about getting away from the tactical about being uh, the relational and, and being able to have the conversation. And so one of the things I run into a lot as I, as I spend time with other MSPs is you know, how do I have this conversation with, with the business decision maker, the stakeholders? And, and by and large, it seems to come back to, you've got to be in the room all the time. You, you can't do this like, Hey, I'm calling you up to let you know that we had to take your server down because this bad thing happened. And hopefully that never does. But when we're having conversations with the client, only when it's bad things or to up their spend, they don't really want to listen to us, even if we're telling them what they need to hear. And so I think that 
one of the things that we have to do to do better, which kind of leads into your number two, I, I think that we have to stop making this about our business, protecting them and about the client protecting their own business. If they don't have skin in the game to protect their own business because they just think that you're doing it all for them, then quite honestly, you'll never get to number two. That's, that's a great way of looking at that. And I agree, you know, we can take, there's a lot of analogies I think we can make with that. You know, one of those is a personal trainer, right? So let's say I'm, you know, morbidly obese and man, dang it, I'm going to get in shape this year. Yeah. Well, the, they can give me the guides. They can do the assessments. They can tell me the best practices. They can give me the regimen, but ultimately, unless I do the work and I take responsibility for my own physical body, none of that matters at all. It's a huge godsend to have a physical trainer to be there at your side every step of the way and a huge shortcut. And that's what you are as a technology service provider for that client. Absolutely. But you make a great point. I think the analogy there is there has to be ownership because if there's not ownership, what's going to happen in the aftermath of a breach? The very first thing that happens is that client points that finger right at you and says, how did you let this happen? You do all my security, right? right? And, the, and, and you're thinking, wait a second. No, no, no. I've been trying to get you to do all this stuff for the longest time, right? Or you mismessaged that and said, you know, you buy all this latest, greatest stuff and you're secure, you know, yeah. and you're doing all the right things. Well, you're just setting yourself up for disaster. This is where that whole assume breach mentality comes from is right. this it's not a question of of if it's going to happen it's a question of when so we're doing things left of boom before the bad things happen and we're doing things right of boom after the the aftermath happens to be prepared for it but ultimately this goes to your point chris and i love it you're responsible for all of this for the buy in for it for making sure that our our own folks understand it to making sure that we're doing the right things uh here and we're supporting this totally agree with where you're coming from on that uh, left of boom. That's a Marine statement, is it not? It is. A, yeah. And it, so um, there's a, a good a good friend of mine, Sunil Yu, who I met when he was at uh, Bank of America in our banking days. And now he sort of is like this think tank. He's always been this futurist guy. And so um, he wrote this thing called the Cyber Defense Matrix, which probably a lot of the listeners are aware of. And he talks about left of boom and right of boom. And so he talks about the things that happened before the incident and the things that happened after the incident. And one of the things that he's learned is so many organizations only focus left of boom, right? They only do all these preventative kinds of things. Yeah. And then when the bad thing happens, they're bereft of ability to even detect and know something bad happened. Put the post boom. Detect, yeah. You can't respond. You can't even recover until it's too late. Yeah. So he I feel like that I was love, a big Huntress uh, model too. A big theme of Huntress when they yeah. promote their product, they have the, the right of boom was their... Um, so, so I, I have to add an analogy because I, I, I really like what you said about the, about the trainer. And, and I think that resonates with someone who is motivated because the trainer's in the room to do it. But the analogy that comes to mind for me is say you and I decide to go on a road trip. I'm driving. You're not. I put my seatbelt on. You don't. We get pulled over. You get penalized for $100 because you didn't have your seatbelt on. We get back on the road. You still didn't put your seatbelt on. We get pulled over again. It's another, maybe they even take your license. Cause I think the second time they might take your license if we were in the same state and this database is caught up to each other. But the third time that you still don't have your seatbelt on, we get into a car accident and now you're paralyzed from the waist down. You know, we can see it from both sides, right? Like you can choose to be motivated to follow the trainer. You can choose to put your seatbelt on. But I think with things like when there's penalties attached to it, 
I, I've obviously exaggerated a little bit. Most cases, in fact, I had somebody in my car once that did get a ticket for not having their seatbelt on. Surprise, they put their seatbelt on as soon as the officer went back to his car. Seatbelt went on and like we went on our way and I never saw him not put his seatbelt on again. We have to have car insurance, right? Like no one you go and meet with would say, yeah, I don't have car insurance because I don't care. They have it. How many of them have cybersecurity insurance? In in our in our view, which we have a pretty wide view, given that Fifth Wall is, I think the largest cyber wholesaler there is in this in the country. I'd say fifty percent of businesses have just across the board have cyber insurance coverage, which is pretty wild when you think about it. That's it's better than it was five years ago. It is, yep. But it's still un incomprehensible to think that there's that many that don't have it. And I have to think that it's not just because they don't want it. It's we are still having to educate on what it is. Yep, absolutely. And absolutely what we've seen, and especially because we work with a lot of MSPs that are getting called into this. I mean, they've just been brought up into this because they're now having clients that are reaching out saying, I don't understand this nerd crap and this questionnaire you fill it out you're the it provider and then like wait a second what kind of liability are we taking on by doing right. all this right and so i've seen this on the front end because i talked to so many msps around it and the ones that have had a breach the ones whose friends have had a breach or the ones who have been educated around security they care right. but the rest of them they still a lot of smbs are still at that ground zero level of i'm not a target no one's coming after me no one cares about my data I'll just deal with an attack when it happens. It can't be that expensive. Like that's still the mantra that many of them have. And so we're still in an education phase yeah. with yeah. small businesses to understand, no, the average cost of a ransomware attack for you as a small business is going to be in the aggregate over a million because there's costs that you haven't thought through around monitoring, uh, credit, all the credit monitoring stuff, the breach response stuff, the recovery costs, the outages, you know, yeah. how much does it cost your business when you're out for the average of 16 days for an SMB with ransomware? These are things that they've like, I've never thought of that I, before. I literally so, yeah. just read a report that said in 2021, the average for a breach was $2 million cost. Yeah. Which is right in there. So um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask one more question with regards to the insurance piece. Do you, do you think that you, you mentioned the, the liability? Do you think though, that solution providers are liable either side of that coin? Like the reality is if I don't fill it out and I make you fill it out, um, I've reduced maybe some of my liability because it wasn't me with the pen in the hand. Um, but the reality is, I am the IT solution provider. I am the IT department for my clients, especially when it comes to these technical questions. Um, I would be more concerned and think that I'm less liable on a client who didn't choose to involve me when they answered those questions than the one that just says, answer these. I would rather have, please answer these questions than, oh yeah, I have, yeah we have cyber insurance. Well, well, who answered the questions? Oh, I did. Awesome. Can I see that please? Uh, I don't think solution providers are asking that question enough. Like, hey, you have cyber insurance? Awesome. Let me see the questionnaire you filled out. You didn't fill one out. You just got cyber insurance. Who's your cyber insurance? Uh, and what does this policy look like? What are your coverages? And, and I realize solution providers are not insurance experts. But dear Lord, I think MSP solution providers are becoming, have to become some level of expert when it comes to how to answer questions in the questionnaire, being able to understand the the 15 to 65 things. I think it's the number starting to grow, right? Like these are the things that if you're not doing them, 
I can't even guarantee that you'll get coverage when the claim gets filed because you chose not to do some of the things that were in that questionnaire. Yeah, there, there's a lot here to unpack and, and you're exactly right. I mean, I, ultimately, um, one of the things to consider, and, and I'll give an example of this, is misrepresentation is the real danger here, right? And, and I, insurance companies are finally putting a line in the sand saying, look, when you said that you have MFA everywhere, we expect it to be everywhere, period. Yep. And we see an example of this. There's a lawsuit that's been all the rage and all the conversation in the past few weeks with travelers. Yep, that's yeah. right, in Chicago. And so travelers is coming after a misrepresentation on their in their view of the client. Now, whether the lawsuit, what whoever, whoever the courts hold up for doesn't matter. No. What that means is insurance companies are now saying enough is enough. And I'm not paying out free money. This is not a, no. a charity thing. So when you misrepresent, we're coming after you. So there's there's that element. As an MSP, what you need to be thinking through is ultimately if the client has you go and answer a bunch of stuff, I mean, that's a good thing that they're getting you involved. And if they're yeah. filling out questionnaires and you're not involved, that's a huge red flag, right? Right. But ultimately, whoever signs that is the one that carries the liability. So you can sure. breathe a little bit easier as an MSP and all of that. But my friend, Eric Tilds, who's a, a lawyer, we just did a podcast recently. And one of the things Eric said, you know, he said, from my point of view, as a, as a, as an attorney that works with MSPs, you've got to have an ironclad terms of service. It right. must be ironclad because this stuff will eventually come into a lawsuit at some nasty point. And so, you know, yeah, it is, it is, there is liability that exists with all of this. And you've really got to make sure that you have a qualified um, attorney truly look at what's in place. And then the third thing I'll leave is, and you already kind of hinted at this, Chris, is that you got to involve you got to involve yourself now with your yeah. clients around cyber insurance educating them on why it matters we've already right. given you some detail on the importance of the cost of a breach but you have got to get involved even if it's this you just say hey client if we were to have a breach i know you got cyber insurance can we get a copy of that policy yep. because we need to know who to call right away Yep. We need to know what's in there, what the limits are. We just need to know what's going on there. 99.9% .9 of the time, the clients will be like, heck yeah, you have a copy of that. Yeah. I'm glad you asked. You're protecting my business. And that's where you jump in. And you can even take a peek at that as an MSP. Yeah. You can't. You cannot legally say, you know, I think these limits are good enough or not. That's illegal. But what yeah. you can say is, whoa, this says you have MFA everywhere and you don't. Guess what? Not only is that an opportunity to go course correct, it's also an opportunity to go sell something and use that right. as teeth. There's so much opportunity here. You got to seize on it as an MSP. So last thing, because we went went there, I hear MSPs say this a lot. You know, uh, I have an indemnification on that. I make them sign this, you know, you know, we said no to MFA or whatever it might be. And while I agree with it to a point, I feel like that it doesn't necessarily remove the liability because you are choosing to still provide services to that client who's part of your portfolio that potentially is putting at risk every one of your other clients that said yes to the MFA, that said yes to the security stack. Because I think in, in today's day, correct me if I'm wrong here, we are all part of one ecosystem. So every single one of my clients is potentially the weakest link for me and my company. So can you speak a little bit too, as we wrap this up, that liability or that indemnification that we like to use the term, oh, it's in my, my MSA is ironclad and we have indemnification that they won't hold us responsible for those things. Well, shouldn't you be holding yourself responsible? Yeah, here's my, this is an opinion of mine, but I, it's a very strong opinion of mine is those kinds of indemnification, sign me out of this risk kind of things have their purpose in certain ways, but darn it, we are way too lazy with those things. And what I mean by that is, 
some let's use MFA. MFA is best practice, period. You know yep. that, I know that, everybody knows that, right? And so if a client doesn't want MFA and you're just gonna knee-jerk default to, well, then I'll just have them sign this agreement. You're getting out of it easy and you're putting way too much stupid risk on yourself, especially they're not even gonna be coverable with insurance if you don't sure. have MFA anywhere. So you're being lazy. It's your job to actually go back and, and help the, under, the client understand why it's so important. Now, maybe you use those indemnifications for something far more complex, right? Like maybe they, you know, best practice is a year of log storage, but they only want six months. Okay, maybe it exists there. You know, I had a, one of my good friends, Gary Pika, and I'll, I'll finish on this one. He was talking to a client one time. It was around something stupid like that. The client just didn't want to sign for MFA. He finally looked the client in the eye and he says, why is it I care more about your security than you do? And the client just looked at him and it shocked him. And he goes, I hadn't thought about it like that. He's like, okay, fine, we'll do it. Boom. Like it just might take you. Don't be, I guess my point is this. Don't be lazy on those indemnifications. Don't just knee jerk to them instead of having to sell them with what you know they need. Right. And don't be sort of um, the, I think FUD factor is overdone, right? Like I think if we push too hard on that, they're just going to throw up their hands. That's a very good point. Uh, I really appreciate your time, Wes. For those of you listening, this has been an episode of MSP 1337. Thanks and have a great week.